Hey folks, welcome to Your Basket is Empty, the space where I sit down with the world's most interesting brands and digital agencies to unpack where they're at, where they're going, and how they're navigating the consumer landscape. I'm your host, Tim. So I'm changing up the format a bit for the rest of the year. I'm moving from a season-based schedule to weekly episodes. This will continue into next year also. I really appreciate you tuning in. So if you've got any feedback, you can hit me up at timatyourbasketisempty.com. On this episode, I'm chatting with Mike Stevens, a serial founder, mentor, consultant, and writer with a focus on consumer goods, challenger brands, e-commerce, direct-to-consumer, and startups. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Direct-to-Consumer Playbook. We talk about working in startups before startups was a thing, shaking up the confectionery industry with Peppersmith, why timing is so important for selling a company, DDC state of play and relevance in 2022, why he decided to write the book, The Direct-to-Consumer Playbook, the power of omni-channel strategies, and disrupting the homework category with his new venture, Hutside. Before we get into it, quick word from my sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Clavio, Clavio, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. Whether you're launching your e-commerce business or taking your brand to the next level, Clavio gives you the tools to get growing faster. That's why it's trusted by over 30,000 e-commerce brands. Build your contact list, send emails that pop, and create marketing moments that build valuable customer relationships over any distance. Get started for free today. Visit clavio.com slash your basket is empty to create your free account. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash your basket is empty. Enjoy the episode. Mike, welcome to the pod. Where are you and how are you? I am in Paul on the south coast. So I moved out of a smoky London town about three years ago, um, which was good timing before it all got pretty crazy. So um, I've been down here for about three years and loving it. Yeah, sea air, um, you know, it's a bit of a quiet pace of life. So yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in Paul and I'm pretty happy. Nice. And so, sorry, just to touch on that. So, did you go pre-pandemic or did yeah. you go at pandemic? No, no, lucky. Sort of moved in 2019. So, before it got weird. Um, so, yeah, lucky. So, we're down here for six months and then, you know, really glad we were down here for the six months after that. So, yeah, our, our lockdowns, you know, when everyone else was sort of stuck in, stuck in town, we managed to have those crazy half hours where you know managed to just walk walk up and down the beach, which was definitely um, a good thing to keep you sane in that crazy time. Lovely, right? As I just mentioned uh, prior to recording, I usually like to start by going and doing a bit of a rewind. So I'm keen to learn a little bit more about those kind of early days at Innocent, and then how that led to you founding Peppersmith. Can you kind of talk me through it? Yeah. So I mean. I was 25 or 26 when I joined Innocent and there was a really, I'd been out of university, I think like 18 months, um, doing it for a few bits, doing some, um, doing some logistics stuff, doing some tech stuff and just sort of finding my way as everyone is when you, when you first graduated. But even then, so back when I graduated, I was looking at um, startups and, you know, I wanted to start my own thing. And I was playing with, you know, a few different things, but none of them, as you can imagine, like when you're, when you're 22 and 23, you don't know anything. So, you know, all your ideas, is there, True. You know, they may, even if they're a good idea, you don't know how to do it. So, um, so anyhow, but the reason I joined Innocent is because it was a startup and this was at back in 20, 2001. And in, back in those days, you know, no one was using the word startup. I mean, it was sort of but the um, sort of the, the first the first internet thing and the crash had just happened, yep. uh, and startups were they weren't really 
what most people did. They weren't exciting. They were just yeah. weird. Um, but they wasn't weird for me because I already, you know, I, I was going to do my own thing. So yeah. Um, I was introduced to Innocent. I was lucky because um, Dan, who's the brand guy there, I went to school with his brother. So yep. I sort of knew him. And it's one thing. It's like, yeah, so we're all talking about startup. It's like, oh, Mike, we need some help. And uh, at that time, it was in operations. So we need some help, you know, someone to run this, help run this business. So it's like, you know a bit about that. So um, I got invited along and uh, I got the job. But the reason I was excited about it and I wanted to do it is because it was a startup. Um, and I thought to myself, look, I'll be here for two or three years, work out what this thing called a startup yeah. is, yeah. and then I'll go off and do my own thing. And how it and actually and it turned out I was there for eight years because it was amazing. You know, I was so lucky. I joined one of the best sort of startup brand entrepreneurial yeah. businesses for the last in the UK for the last 30 years or more. Um, so I was there much longer than I thought I was, or I was going to be there. But also I was learning so much more than I thought, you know, than I ever thought I could. So um, I was there. I did a, yeah, some various different roles. I ran the supply chain. I became a country manager. So launching the brand up in, in different countries. But it was always a matter of um, when, not if, that I was going to jump ship and do my own thing. Um, so in 2009, uh, it got to the point where I sort of, you know, I was ready to move on. And also something that happens, and I'm sure, you know, lots of people have this experience. If you're working for a startup, it's all really fun and exciting. And everyone's generalist. You get stuck into everything. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you're the supply chain person, you do marketing and finance. Yep. And sales yep. people do, you know, they're, they're, they're doing a bit of everything. And this, this <laughs> is the experience, you know, most startup businesses. But when they get bigger... Uh, and if they become successful, you know, they mature. And with that maturity, they need specialists. Yep. So you need to fill each role with a specialist in their role. And they, and then really, they should stay in their lane. Yep. I was rubbish at that. Yep. I, you know, I just, you know, I'm, I'm just really curious. I'm, I'm a general, I like to get involved with everything. So, you know, the business was getting mature. Um, I wasn't ready to go with it. So it was like, right, this is the time to start my own thing. So along with another chap called Dan, um, Shrimpton, who I'd met at um, Innocent, we decided to found our own company. We looked at quite a few different things. Um, you know, this is 2008, 2009. Oh, what, what should we do? Um, looks at some really fun stuff, including craft beer. I mean, I mean, we should have done craft beer because <laughs> that's when Brew Dog and Meantime were just starting. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah that, that, that might have worked, but in hindsight. Yeah. But no, we decided to do um, Pebblesmith, which is confectionery. And the reason we did confectionery is because um, the confectionery, especially things like chewing gum, was the antithesis of everything that we were doing at Innocent and things were going really well. So we saw this opportunity across food and drink, or the trend was for more natural, healthy, sustainable products. We have a great brand to tell that story. And these trends were going all across, you know, all the food and drink, apart from confectionery. Confection was still left in the, you know, as it has been for decades, if not hundreds of years. So really high volume, really cheap crap, um, loads of sugar in. And we thought here's an opportunity to do something different here. So that's the category we decided to go at and launch Peppersmith as really um, the brand that was, you know, designed to take that category into the 21st century. And did you, I'm always curious about those kind of like intersections or parallel sort of universes that sort of ultimately collide when you were innocent, were you kind of thinking about this prior to that? Because you obviously had this sort of inkling or itch to scratch. And was it like a, 
was it a transition between you kind of had some research and stuff done or was it a clean break? You kind of left Innocent, took some time off, research and then kind of went into Pepsi. And, and no, and I think you're nuts if you're starting your own business, if you don't look at it properly before you um, sort of cut all your ties. So <laughs> definitely looking at the um, the opportunity, who's the market, who's there, and importantly, like the, the supply chain, who can we get to make this product? Yeah. And it was only when we found a manufacturer who can make the stuff in the way we wanted to. It was at that moment, it's like, oh, right, this can be a thing. So that's the point where sort of jump ship away from it, away from Innocent. But Innocent was really supportive. I mean, Innocent really was, I mean, it still is to an extent, but back in those days, such an entrepreneurial hotbed. Uh, you know, everyone was really encouraged to think, you know, about, you know, Innocent, the brand and the products, but also, um, I guess, the opportunities in the, in the world at large. So, yeah, I sort of, you know, left with, you know, full support of the founders and everyone in the business. Uh, and the other thing, yeah, in terms of thinking in the business, I mean, because Innocent was such an entrepreneurial place, um, we you're just working with some great people. And, you know, and from the very beginning, I was like, ooh, I like you. I might like to work with you on a thing later. <laughs> or I, I, I like what nice. you, you know. And, you know, that, that doesn't always work out, but you're, you're always on the lookout, for, I guess, for opportunities, but also yeah. to co-founders. So um, that that was it. So, yeah, and, you know, and I, and, yeah, like you, and I love to, the, yeah, these these adjacent possibilities um so so often you have the opportunity and the, or you have some learnings and hasn't yet been applied to a new challenge so yeah that's always exciting uh so fast forward a little bit why did you decide to sell pepper smith and like can you talk me through that process a little bit yeah 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 so um i mean the we started the business in 2009. We've sort of hit revenue start of 2010. Uh, and it was really quite successful, especially for the first few years. So, you know, in terms of it was a confectionery company. So we got listings with the big supermarkets, you know, a lot of the coffee shops, delis, health food shops. So we you know, had some quite good distribution uh, and, and it grew. But then, you know, a few fundamentals happened in the market. I guess we started to um, find dis- distribution harder and harder to get because, you know, we started, you know, to compete with the big boys in, mm. in the supermarkets. Mm. Um, and then also around that time, so it's like 2016, this god-awful thing called Brexit happened. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and what that meant for us, it was, it was quite a big thing for us because we were sourcing or the way we we made our products, there wasn't any expertise or capability in the UK. So we were sourcing it all from the Eurozone. And all of a sudden our, our prices, our cost of goods went up by between 10 and 20%. Yep. And we went, we went from profit making to loss making. Mm-hmm. So that was a really tough couple of years to try and navigate a way through that to <clears throat> find find a way to you know structure the business and change pricing where we can actually make some money again. So we got through that and this was sort of yeah. 2015 2016 2017 and it was that point it was very clear to me that to make the next step we were going to have to get some more investment in i mean we'd only raised like sort of 500 grand or so to start so it was a time for you know i guess for most businesses it would have been like series a time so we need need to get some money to get this up and run uh, you know to take it on um however it was clear to me as we're going through that process in terms of how much money we could raise and what valuation, what does that mean to dilution? Um, it was just really uncertain in terms of mm. even if we took um, some investment, we had a few offers, even if we took some investment, could we get enough money to make a real difference without diluting ourselves to nothing? Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, and the other thing for me was, um, 
was I ready to commit to the next cycle? Yeah. And so the business cycle, you know, between sort of five and seven years, yeah. was I going to be able to, <clears throat> excuse me, a business cycle between five and seven years and think for me, was I ready to commit to that length of time? And it, and I thought, you know, at that time, it was like, look, I'm not sure we're going to be able to get enough investment to make a difference. If we take any sort of investment, I'm going to have to be highly diluted. Um, I don't know where this is going to take us. Mm. And if we, whatever, wherever it's going to take us, I'm going to have to commit to it for the next five or seven years. I'm not sure I've, you know, all those, um, those variables add up. And then at the same time, uh, we had um, one of the investor, uh, the companies we, we had approached for investment, they they put an offer on the table and said, look, you know, we, to be honest, we're not really, really sure about investing, but we would quite like to buy the brand. Mm. We like the brand, we like what you built, we think we could take it to the, yeah. you know, the next step under, uh, you know, sort of our, our ownership are you up for selling and so because i wasn't sure about where this was going and i really wasn't sure if i wanted to be in it for the next five or seven years after already being in it for sort of eight or more yep. it was just the right it was the right time to sell so yeah sort of brokered a deal you know didn't didn't make uh make us a fortune but it was a good enough deal at the time to actually step onto the next thing yeah, so that's nice. when i managed to get out of london move down to the coast and sort of just reset um so i just had this break from peppersmith and ready for the next challenge Lovely. Yeah, that's so interesting, the timing aspect. I think it's one thing that kind of gets missed a little bit in those kind of like exit stories, right? Sometimes it's literally just a matter of timing, right? And like your your current and future kind of like goals, right? Personally, and, and what you want to do as a person, right? Well, this is right. And this is what I've sort of talked to other founders about this in terms of when is the right time and what should you be looking for. And it was really really quite simple for me once i thought about it properly because it was all about objectives if i move on from peppersmith what do i want to achieve mm. what does success look like <clears throat> to be able to do that um it's been very clear on those things so, so for me it was like moving a new challenge a bit of time um there, there was a, there was a few things that i wanted there and one and what that allowed me to do is not get so hung up on I've been working on this thing for eight years. I deserve a massive fat check at the end of it. Because, <laughs> you know, the gets they get very tired out. Oh, of course, like, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, I just, yeah. I just, you know, I've been doing this for ages. I want my big payday. Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah. well, um, you know, that might happen. You know, could happen. And, you know, mm. when it does happen to some people. It's usually not for free, though, right? There's usually some some big strings attached with the big Yeah, there's fat, some big strings JJ. attached. So, um, I mean, one of, the, one of the things I did with the, with the deal as well, um, I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to, again, commit to this for much longer. So one of the things with the deal is like, look, I will give you 12 months. Mm. And the the hope was, the hope wasn't me. And, I, you know, I say this very honestly, like I was hoping I was going to like the new owners and they were going to like me. Yep. So we would, you know, have that commitment for a year, if like try before you buy. Yep. And then we can go on to do some, you know, some good things together. Um, when I got to the end of the year, it was pretty clear in terms of, you know, the, uh, I guess, typical story ideas the new owners and the ideas of the founder quite different yep. so it was like okay it was it was quite you know i should step away but yeah but, and, but one of the things i did have to make a sacrifice there because i was told you know if uh, if you're prepared to commit for longer you'll probably get a better deal yep but again it goes back to actually what's most important to totally me. yeah 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 and the money the money like can go down the priority list very quickly right like very quickly in terms of your time and your 
personal achievements and stuff like that. Well, well, it, well it should do. Money, you know, money is an enabler. It's not, you know, can't be the be all and end all. Totally. Um, okay, so that's a nice segue into so you, you, some consulting. But then I'm I'm keen to touch on the book that you've you've recently um, launched. So the direct consumer playbook. So why did you decide to write that? Yes. Yeah, so um, the direct consumer playbook. The, the 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 genesis was there. The seed was there from the work we were doing at Peppersmith. So at Peppersmith, you know, weirdly for a consumer brand, we learned how to do these D to C. And to the point where it was really quite successful. So about a third of our revenue was coming either from our own sort of Shopify web shop or we did some like third party marketplace, yep. especially with Amazon. So we had a whole, you know, a lot of business that was coming through, not, I guess, not the traditional channels, which are the, with the retailers. Um, but we were doing that all, you know, we, we were learning as we went along. We didn't really know how to do it um we were just trying to figure out how and one of the things i did in terms of when um when we decided you know d2c because we'd all, always had a web, web shop right so the web shop was always there for people who had heard of the brand but maybe couldn't buy it in the local shop so there'd always been a web shop there but you know what was happening that the uh, the d2c part of our business was growing without us really trying without us putting any uh, attention on it and then so the thought was well let's do this properly let's put some effort into it and let's see how far we can push the side of the business so it was that point. It's like, well, we don't really know how to do D2C. So I started asking around, I mean, you know, sort of other founders that I knew out there. Yep. And pretty much I got the same answer from everyone who was doing D2C as really part of a multi-channel strategy. Um, they thought, oh, it's about retail. And then actually D2C is the thing we should do. Um, everyone was sort of just making it up as they went along for a bit <laughs> on, on the fly. Um, there was no, there was no rule, but there was no playbook. Yep. Um, there were a few businesses like um, the business I knew down the road, Grays. Uh, yep. They were doing things very differently. They had a very deliberate, very considered D to C only strategy, and they were doing things in a way that yes, they they knew what they were doing. For the rest of us, it was like, what the, what should we do next? I don't know. Um, so anyway, so we, we grew the business. DTC was quite successful. But all the time I was doing it, I was like, why can't I just buy the sodding book that tells me how this is done? <laughs> and so this was, you know, I first had that thought probably in 2014. When I got to sell the business in 2018 and sort of exited out of it in 2019, um, it just occurred to me that the, this book still hadn't been written. Uh, and here I was, who just sold my business. I had a bit of time. Yep. I needed a break from sort of, you know, consumer goods. I needed to do something different. It's like, well, why don't I take the time to write the book that I know people need? Because I certainly needed it. Yep. Yep. And so then I spent two years um, you know, sort of interviewing sort of my founder. Some of them I knew very well. Um, some I had to, had to find. Uh, and then introduce myself and the concept of what I was doing. But the whole idea was I'm going to interview the founders and out of their stories, I'm going to pick out what are the strategies, you know, what are the fundamental things they've done to make their businesses work? Because D2C is really hard. You know, there was a time when everyone thought it was easy. They quickly realized it's not. So these brands that have sort of come through the other side and these companies that have got D2C work, what did they do and what are they still doing to make their businesses successful, whereas everyone else is sort of just sort of struggling a bit. Yeah, uh, that's so interesting. And I, I definitely noticed you've got some of the big heavy, the, the UK heavy hitters of the direct consumer world in the book, the Hules, the Heights, I think Greys are in there. 
Yeah. How, how did you decide who to include in the book other than personal relationships? Were they brands that you looked to as inspiration? Did you see them doing anything differently? Did you see that they could use some help potentially? And it was, you know, ultimately the book would have been a good resource for them. Oh, do you, do you know what? I, the, the book is all about helping people, right? So I hope it's going to be a good resource for anyone. You know, I wrote this book. It's the sort of book that I wanted to help me. So, you know, when I had the chance, it's like, okay, here's a chance for me to help others and write the book. Um, but in terms of who I chose, I mean, I was in food and drink. So um, while there were some really good B2C food and drink companies, there's a couple in the book like Grey's and there's Tribe, Huel, um, who are great ones. And, you know, I'd met all of those founders before writing the book, so it was easy for me to approach them. But I was really clear that I didn't want this to be the B2C book for food companies. It was more, it was much more of a general um, overview of B two C companies. So after that, so yeah, I um, there's a quick, you know, quickly asked around my, my founding group. Um, but beyond that, it was like, you know, it was like how many degrees of separation are there, are there between me and other founders of the brands mm. that I liked? Mm. So you know, introducing myself or I've getting other people to introduce me, um, and, and then you know, just talk to the founders what I'm trying to do. And the good news is, you know, on for most. They, of the people I approached, they got it. They understood me and they understood what I was trying to achieve mm-hmm. and they were happy to promote. And one thing about, I guess, most founders, they can talk about their own businesses for hours. And hours. <laughs> yeah, they're usually pretty good at that. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 well, they say, and they love it as well. You know? Yeah, exactly. They're passionate you know, and they know it well. And, you know, yeah, they're usually relatively good orators and, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's um, it's a good combination. And, and there's one of the things that came from the book, you know, the, all the, you know, the businesses that works generally have really passionate, knowledgeable founders. So I'm curious then, what surprised you most during the research and like writing of the book, either from like what you learned about the founders or the businesses or the DTC playbook in general? Yeah, so many things. I mean, one of the reasons I wrote it was from a new experience and it was a great new learning experience. That's writing a book. I mean, one thing about writing a book is it's really tough. You know, yeah, you know it's, like, it's like running the marathon, right? You know yep. it's tough and then like all of a sudden you're in it and you're like, oh my God. I knew it was so, going to be tough. So why, why what, am I doing this? It's really hard. What, what was what was tough about Like, was it the fact that it was writing not your natural kind of like go-to? Was it the fact that it just required like research and writing? Yeah, I'm curious to sort of touch on that. Yeah, I mean, I, guess, I mean, first question, you know, writing, I guess it wasn't my, my, my natural go-to. I mean, I like businesses and I see them as um, sort of puzzles and, you know, it's, it's quite scientific. I like numbers. I mean, like, you know, I've, I'm I'm real nerd. I love messing around with Excel spreadsheets and stuff. That's, yeah, nice, nice. That, that's that's just the way I'm I'm made up. However, um, yeah, it's sort of you know through the work I've done with brands, I do understand the power of communication. So it was a, it was a challenge. Like you know, can I also? I know I can do the number stuff. Can I do the words as well? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, beyond that, you know, there's um, you have to. I guess you have to start somewhere. And so that I started, you know, written a few blog posts with Pepsi for whatever. And then, you know, I started some of these stories that they were blog posts first yep. to see, you know, can I write, but also are they useful? Yep. And then it was only going through that process that were well, actually these things. I quite like doing the interviewing. I quite like doing the writing and they seem to, you know, people seem to like them, seem to be useful. And it was then I sort of started approaching like, publishers that said, look, I've got this thing that I want to do um will you help me do it and it's only when i found a publisher properly um they were like yes sort of we you know we would like you to write this book uh yeah, and, you know, had, had the backing to do it it's like okay I, i'm in it now and that's when uh that's when shit got real 
<laughs> that's usually a good driver. Yeah, so, yeah. You're, you're committed. Yeah, one of the chapters in the book, uh, I'm going to quote it here, is um, why your brand purpose and product is still more important than your technology, which I thought was very interesting. Can you explain a little more by what you meant? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, this, this, this is a good one, right? So your brand and your purpose, this is about, you know, sort of what problem you're trying to solve and why. Entre an entrepreneur's job is to solve problems. And entrepreneurs and businesses are rewarded really well for solving problems that lots of people have. And people, you know, want this problem solved. That's what it's all about in terms of being, being a startup, scaling the business. Um, that is so much more important than your technology. Your technology is your, yes, your enabler, it's your tactics. And things with technology as well. I mean, you, you've seen this, Tim, in terms of the time that you, you've worked in um, sort of e-com, um, how quickly it changes, you know, and whether that is your platform, you know, mm -hmm. is, it, is it Magento or Shopify or, you know, yep. WordPress, all that stuff. And then actually, and then it's something you think about your marketing. Is it about blogs? Is it about social ads? Is it, you know, is it about podcasts? What, whatever it is, is, is the next thing. All of that stuff, I guess that's just a, a medium where, you know, your message um, and your ability to connect with customers, that's what it sits upon. But none of it makes any sense. None of it's worthwhile unless you've got, you know, businesses with you know, some really good products that solve a problem and then people, you know, want those products to solve, you know, to solve that problem. That's the most important thing. Um, so that's why I always, you know, when I wrote the book, it was all about, it's all about, you know, the fundamentals, about the foundations. It's not about, I recommend at this time you should be doing TikTok and not Instagram because, you know, clearly that's going to make you more money and you've got a better CPA. I don't care. Yeah. What I do care about is actually, yeah, what are you, what are you trying to achieve? Yeah, totally. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Like it feels uh, certainly at the period that you you've been like in this space that the democratization of the technology has just has been rampant. So the barrier to entry is so low, right? Like the, there's just the technology is there. It's all great, but it's not not a differentiator. And I, I do find that if, if you're a brand or you're an entrepreneur using the technology as your differentiator, that's going to be quite hard to succeed and cut through the noise, right? Like it is the story or the purpose or the brand or the problem solving that's probably going to, you know, get you to the place you want to be. Yeah, but you've got to be smart about it. I mean, you still got to pick, you know, what's the best that's the best tech stack for um, you know, a business of your size and your shape and what you're trying to achieve. Hmm. You know, you should do a bit of work on that. You don't want to just ignore it. But ultimately, you can have the best technology in the world, but without, you know, without products and, and people to sell it to. So what? Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm curious then to just explore DTC as a concept. So, you know, I think we can agree that the landscape, the DTC landscape has changed quite dramatically in the last three years. But even more so, I suppose, some would have sort of like forecast it maybe not the last six to eight months particularly on ddc funding and stuff like that you know it's kind of had a bit of a shake up but i'm wondering like what's your take on ddc as we enter the back end of 2022 and how relevant do you think it is as a concept or does it need a bit of a rethink no i mean i i really love ddc that's why you know i want to see more of it when i was doing Pepsmith and i've read the books like yeah this is a really amazing platform and what's good about it then and it's still good about it now is it's the a brilliant place to bring new products and brands into the market and connect with a very early community and that community helps you improve 
uh, and make your products even better. And actually, you know, it's, it's a validation, right? You know, we've got this product. We think we're going to help these people. Those people who are trying to help, you can connect with them and they're going to let you know. It's like, yes, this works or it doesn't. If it really doesn't work, they're not ever going to come back. But what, they, what they're more likely to say is, you know, we like all of these things about your products, but we wish you could fix these, you know, these extra things. Can you do that? And it's like, oh, right, yeah, let me let me fix that. And then all of a sudden, you've got a really powerful offer. And then you've got a choice there. Once you've done all that bit, you can say, right, okay, I'm going to double down because D2C is just the perfect platform for us. And, you know, and we're just going to build and build and build a D2C business. Or what's often happening now is actually, oh, you know, we've really got a good product and we know we can, we, you know, we've got, we're able to help people and, you know, people really seem to like what we're trying to do. Let's find more of them. And you find more of them probably with a multi-channel strategy. Yeah. So you get, you get away just from your website, you know, what different ways to connect. Is it third party? Is, is it retail? Is it wholesale? Is it, is it gyms? Is it whatever? You know, there's just lots of different places where you can connect with people who might uh, appreciate what you're trying to do. That's super interesting. Yeah, I, that was something I wanted to touch on, the kind of concept of omni-channel, because I, I feel that being in the DDC space, it's certainly... Uh, hasn't maybe got the best reputation for like purest DTC sort of brands, but how important do you think it is? And at what point do you kind of need to start exploring it? Is it, is it a maturity level or do you think brands can look at it earlier just because their product might lend itself to being on Amazon? So they should be looking at marketplaces earlier than what they would if they were um, not so much of an Amazon E type brand. Yeah. So before I get into the answer, and I've got, I have got lots of thoughts on this. It says, why, why do you think it's got a bad reputation? It's like seen as uncle. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the reason I would say it is from being six years at a Shopify agency that sort of our sweet spot was growth stage direct consumer businesses. However, we tended to uh, fit well with the more enterprising in the Shopify world, like the bigger merchants and they would always talk about omni-channel and I would never ever see it anywhere in a brief or anything to do with the sort of growth stage brands that we were at. So it was a bit of an assumption, but I, I would also explore it with some of those brands and it just, it, it wasn't seen as a thing. It was, you know, a lot of them would consider themselves uh, DNVB brands, you know, and it was like, we're not going to touch, we're not going to touch marketplaces. We hate Amazon. And so, yeah, there was, maybe I'm um, paraphrasing and, 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 and taking a few liberties, but there was definitely not a great, uh, brand reputation of omnichannel in, in some of the brands that i kind of worked with so that's that's my my experience yeah and, and i think uh, and i think things have actually i think the whole ecosystem's matured a little bit since maybe those days so that, one of the things I, I found during the book i mean in terms of you know brands are starting d2c this is the d2c play and actually they evolve into multi-channel and the reason they start looking at other channels twofold number one if you're like Grays, for instance, they were like, you're right, we've built this, you know, amazing, you know, we've got this amazing factory, we've got all these products, um, DTC is going well, but we want to do more. For them, it was like, actually, we're leaving loads of opportunity on the table by not looking at sort of traditional retailers, etc. It's like, you know, there are just a lot of people out there who would who, who would buy our products. And if by staying DTC, we're not when we're not able to serve them so why would we not just try and grow our business um so that was the first 
thoughts and then the second one and this happens lots and i think this is where you know a lot of dc brands get to is actually they build their business up and say okay let's build you know they go d to c and they get into the you know they're doing quite well but you know sort of 500 grand of sales maybe a million if they're you know if they're doing really well they sort of two million onwards but you know they sort and then they sort of get, get a bit stuck and they realize oh actually we're not able to sustain this business with that amount of revenue especially if they haven't got like their margin structure right and they're not actually yep. making enough money on all this revenue it's like oh we can't afford to pay our you know our marketing team who needs to do all the content for us mm. yeah we can't get our finances under control our supply chain is a bit of a mess what do we do about that and actually you know we thought we were going to be able to scale our way out of this and guess what we're not we've sort of plateaued we've got a bit stuck and we're still you know we're still eating into our runway we're actually not making money so what do you do is that well, actually we need to we need to make more revenue how do we do that well you go to you go to different channels and again that could be could be an amazon it could be a retailer it could be a wholesaler yeah. whoever but you just need to think beyond where you are because I, I do think it's actually for a brand owner unless it's just so super obvious that it should just be d2c you're actually being a bit selfish mm. to think that all customers are just going to come to your website yeah. you know they have to make the effort to come onto your website to transact with you directly and so as they you know they've just got other things to be doing it doesn't, <laughs> mean, they doesn't mean they don't like your products or like you yeah. Yeah. it's just it's just not convenient for them to do that so yeah. you know how do you look after those guys um but the the, the last sort on multi-channel and third-party marketplaces etc the thing that you do and this is why most dtc brands are a bit wary of doing it and so they should be you lose data that 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 data connection with the end customer interesting that's, yeah that, you know that is just such a it's an amazing thing that d2c allows you to do um because you can use all that information yep. again to make your products better but you know to to connect with your customers find out who they are how you do more for them you know they love you for it because you're about to you can um, talk directly to them about your products and your service and why it's important to important to you and it's important to them all of this you know this thing happens with this direct relationship as soon as you go multi-channel that sort of disappears so um yeah that is the reason why you have to think very carefully it's like what happens to those customers when we yeah. interact them directly and this is why most brands you know they should always have d2c d2c enables you with that direct that direct con uh, connection yeah they're going to be your biggest fans they're the ones who are really happy to come on your website and get your newsletters and all the stuff uh, and serve them um but don't forget there's a load of other people who can say <laughs> have to sacrifice you, you, the fact that you might know them might not know them as well yeah interesting i'm keen to switch gears slightly um and i think we were talking about it before we jumped on the line but tell me a bit more about hot side because ah, it's not like you haven't got enough going on i'm curious like what's what's hot side where you know what's the mission and where are you at yes yeah, so, so hot side this is my my new venture so um after yeah, selling Peppersmith, I wanted to give myself a year or two um, to have a break and think about the next next big thing. And um, that year or two was spent consulting, and it um, was spent writing the book. Book's now done; it's out there. So yep. yeah, quick, please check it out. Um, but you know, I'm ready for a new thing. So I'm still doing consulting. But my um, what I have identified is that you know there's a gap in the market um, for better made textiles, and what I mean by that is that i've noticed you know through i guess the work i've done on the book and you know everyone can see this 
the textile industry has really moved on. Textiles and sustainability have really had this clash in terms, you know, in terms of whether it's um, you know, um, energy waste, water, mm-hmm. worker treatment, all the stuff. Textiles, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's got a got a bad rep, and uh, and for good reason. However, the good news for every for everyone is there's a bunch of brands out there, whether it's in like a Patagonia mm-hmm. or, or an Allbirds or a Pangaea. Yeah, these mm-hmm. brands are doing some really good stuff in terms of making the products from more um, sort of low impact materials, um, which are more environmentally friendly, low CO2, and obviously doing it D2C and just and selling and making their products in a very different way than what have come before with fast fashion. So my big idea was why don't we take all of that innovation in the you know, sort of fashion textiles, which is about sort of low impact sustainability, connecting D2C uh, and all the things. Why don't we take that into home textiles and in particular bedding and towels and stuff? Because uh, a bit like the way I viewed um, the confectionery market when we started Peppersmith, it's all just really old school. Really yeah, interesting. And it hasn't adapted to this growing, you know, not only a consumer need, I guess it's a global societal need to do things better, to do things in a different way. Interesting. That's super interesting because I, I do think that that space from a brand perspective is quite traditional and there aren't as many kind of like uh, more direct consumer type brands in the space. I think there's one out of Sweden or in the Nordics there somewhere called Tekla. I think they've done a pretty good job of like cutting through the noise. But yeah, taking it from the actual uh, supply chain perspective, that's so it would it be that you would be some uh, an intermediary, like you would provide some sort of intermediary services or are you thinking about having your own uh, brand that's consumer facing as well? Hell no! I'm I'm a consumer goods brand person. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know the brand the branding piece is one of the most exciting bits, and uh, you know because it's about creativity, but it's all about you know identifying you know what purpose you know do you, do you start um, uh, <clears throat> what purpose you have as a business, and the brand is a bit about you know the communication bit. Yep. Um, so yes, it's got to be branded. It's got to be a a product. That, that's what I do. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not really a B2B person. So okay, interesting. Um, I'm keen to look forward and sort of start to to round out the conversation. Where is Mike in five years? Well, I think you know. I'm still going to be whatever I'm doing and whatever I guess ever businesses I'm involved with. I'm still going to be solving problems. I'm still going to be building. That's what I like to do. I love it. Love building businesses. So um, I don't know, was to see see where it takes us. You know, unlike I guess unlike that path I painted in the picture. You know, the, that Peppersmith inflection point. It's like I'm not sure I want to be on this path in the next five to seven years. Um, yes, I'm on a new path now, and I'm just quite excited about where it can take me. So we we will see. Very good. Uh, and finally, like, where can people find you if people want to connect or learn more? Where can they buy the book? Where can they, you know? reach out and um have a conversation with mike yeah and i love i love chatting about you know business d2c brands whatever yeah please uh hunt me down and we'll, we'll have a chat so um the books the direct consumer playbook i mean that's available from all good bookshops i mean uh, amazon's the most obvious one just do me a favor if you do buy from amazon please leave me a nice review as well nice very good uh, and in terms of just just connecting i mean i'm on I'm not. I'm not the most active on social, but I'm on Twitter. So I'm um, Open Mike Stevens. 
you can find me there. But also LinkedIn uh, is, is a great resource for, just, I guess, chatting to people sort of in industry. So you'll find me, Mike J. Stevens on LinkedIn. But uh, yeah, uh, also my consulting website, which is um, stevens.earth. Um, so any of those places, you'll find me. Um, but yeah, I'll just stick in, you know, Mike Stevens, Direct Consumer Playbook and Mike Stevens, Peppersmith. You will find me. So I'd love to chat. Nice. Go on, buy the book. <laughs> please, <laughs> buy the book. <laughs> please buy the book. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for joining me. That was great, mate. Thanks very much. There you go, folks. Thanks so much for joining me. Before I go, a quick word from my sponsor, Clevio, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. If you want to learn more, go visit them at clavio.com slash your basket is empty. And as always, if you like the episode, please leave a review, subscribe, download, and tell all your mates to do exactly the same. I'll see you next time. You know what they say about folk.